going to say that the past 72 hours, I have been especially cognizant of the fact um, that this morning is not about me. Um, and in a lot of ways, this morning is not about this message. I don't know what God is doing right now, not just this morning, right now at Providence. Um, but I mentioned the last 72 hours because I came home from work Thursday and uh, needed to walk the dogs. I needed to walk them for my mental health. And so I set out to walk the dogs. And usually, no offense, Tony, when I miss a sermon on Sunday morning, I don't always catch up and listen promptly. Um, and last week I was away, so I didn't hear the sermon. But the Holy Spirit said, why don't you listen to the sermon while you walk the dogs? So I did. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, Tony preached for almost an hour, which gives me a lot of freedom this morning as well. Um, but... Um, most, I, I didn't finish the sermon on the walk with the dogs, but as my husband can testify to, I came home, we were in the kitchen preparing dinner, and I told him, I can't give this sermon Sunday morning. Um, I mean, I don't know, and he was like, whoa, whoa, and I said, uh, Tony totally cut my legs out from under me. Like, I mean, he used verses that I was going to use, but I was going to use them differently, and now if I use them, I'm going to sound like I'm correcting him, or I'm just trying to confuse everybody. And so, but I can't just like cut them out. I can't text Tony tonight and say, just kidding, Sunday doesn't really work. I can't write another sermon in two days. So David's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. But I knew I just kind of needed some time to sit with it and um, not make an emotional decision. Um, and lo and behold, I listened to portions of the sermon again. I tried to let things settle a bit. I really tried to ask the Holy Spirit, like, what are you trying to do here? And I think that the sermons fit together better than I originally thought. And that's not because Tony and I coordinated anything. I did not know what he was preaching on last Sunday. Um, but last week in part, if you didn't hear his sermon, if you weren't here, go back and listen to it. It is good. It is broad and deep in ways that this morning is not. Um, but in part, Tony talked about our faith being a transforming faith, a renewing faith. Um, we need to be changed. Um, the kind of faith where uh, we need to learn the ways where we have been conformed to the culture, to our environments, and then be transformed to be more Christ-like. At least that's most of what I took from it. Again, there was a lot more to it. Um, check that out. Um, but what I want to talk about this morning is probably the primary way that God has used in my life to transform me. And that is a biblical model for hospitality. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only way God transforms us, but I'm also not saying this is an optional way that God transforms us. He doesn't give us a list and says, pick whichever one you want. I believe the Bible says, as God's people, we are to be hospitable. Um, so one of the easiest ways for me to start when I think about trans of transformative faith and becoming aware of where I'm complicit culturally and what God needs to change in my heart, um, that, that process begins after the Holy Spirit has convicted me. Oftentimes I'm not even aware that's happening. Um, I have to unlearn something. I have to unlearn what I was thinking or what I was believing. So I want to start by sharing three things I have unlearned about hospitality. Maybe some of you share these thoughts. Maybe some of you don't. But these were beliefs I had that were flawed. 
So I was well into my adult years before I realized that hospitality is not a spiritual gift. If you look at the New Testament passages that list spiritual gifts, hospitality is not listed. Now, this was kind of discouraging for me to realize because I knew from, from before I was an adult that, that I knew what my spiritual gift was. It wasn't hospitality. And I thought that was great, so I don't have to be hospitable, which is good because I'm really not good at it by some cultural definition. But countless times in my life, countless times, even into recent months, I've heard the phrase, she has the gift of hospitality. Now, to be clear, I've never heard it said about me, but I've heard that phrase all throughout my life. She has a gift of hospitality. So like I'm prone to do, I process that entirely in my own mind. I do not speak out loud with people in a community of faith. And so what I came to believe was that some people have the gift of hospitality. And since this was being said by church women, of church women at baby showers and potlucks and in people's homes, I thought they were saying it's a spiritual gift. That woman has the spiritual gift of hospitality. But again, the New Testament doesn't list it as a spiritual gift. Um, I always imagined, like, they were always talking about ladies whose, like, homes looked like better homes and gardens, and their brunch menu came right from Southern Living, and that was never going to be me. So clearly I didn't have the gift. But again, it's not a spiritual gift. Now, some people may have a home that is apt for a dinner party. If your home is that way, use it like that. Steward it well. Some people might be really energized at the idea of having people in that home, in their home. Great. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us, myself included, aren't called to be hospitable. The second thing I learned is that hospitality is not relegated to one gender or the other. Now, again, this was my flawed presumption because I've, I've never heard anyone say that I can remember, he has the gift of hospitality. It was always said about a woman, so I just thought men aren't hospitable. They're not expected to be. But because of this, I didn't learn to identify the ways that my dad is hospitable in different ways from my mom. But it's not that he's not. But also, we'll look at some passages in the Bible. It's clear the Bible says uh, men and women offer hospitality. That is a call for both of us. And the third thing I've unlearned is that hospitality is not friendliness or warmth. So we live in the South. Most of us are aware we have our own category of hospitality in the South. Um, I'm reminded of this every fall. Many of you know, but part of my work at Carson Newman is serving our international students. And we have more than 100 international students from some 45 different nations around the world. And every fall, we get a new group. Um, and it's, it's such an exciting time for me. I just love meeting our new students. They really, they come from all over the world. And if I see some of those new students in August, early September, if I pass them in the CAF or on campus, and I stop and say, how's it going? Are you settling in? At least one of them will say, everyone is so friendly. Like, strangers smile at me on the sidewalk, and they'll ask me how I'm doing. And for most of them, that is a huge culture shock. They come from big cities around the world, and this is like, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. And they're like, it's just wonderful. And the first thing that pops through my mind is, well, they should be, because we're a Christian university. We should be kind, right? But then I also say a little prayer in my heart that 
that will always be their testimony of life in Jefferson City, that wherever they go, they will say the same thing. People are so friendly at the grocery store, at the doctor's office, because I know that isn't always the case for our students. But if I see that same student in November and I ask how it's going, it's also not uncommon for them to say, I was wrong. People don't really care how I'm doing. They say, how are you? But they just keep on walking. They don't stop and listen. No one invites me to something. I haven't had a homemade meal in three months. And so what they thought was warm hospitality is surfacey level. That's not biblical hospitality. That isn't always the case with all of our students, but it happens every year. So for me, it's important to go ahead and acknowledge, I've had to unlearn some of my cultural learnings about hospitality. So the first, again, is that hospitality is not a spiritual gift. It's not Southern hospitality. And the expectation from Scripture is that as followers of God, all of us will demonstrate this. So what is hospitality the way God desires it? I think it can be easy, and I've been part of some of these conversations here and other places, to talk about kind of the practical applications, like what does it look like? How do I do this? Am I doing it right? But I think it's more important for us to start with what is the purpose of hospitality? If we can get the heart of it right, what is the Bible asking of us? What is Christ expecting of us? Then the practical applications, they're still there, but they're not as consuming. We, we, can, we can let them aside because we've got the heart of it right. So I want to start with a particular passage from the Old Testament. This is in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, we'll talk about some other stories as well, but uh, I want to set this up. So this is one of my favorite hospitality passages. I think it's interesting. Like if I look in the back of my Bible for hospitality stories, they're not the ones that actually tell a story about hospitality. It's a scripture where that word is used, but if you... If you think and pray about what what the Lord wants from you in terms of hospitality, you're going to see these stories pop up all throughout Scripture. I mean, how many of us, when we hear the word hospitality, think of the story of Zacchaeus? And yet, it's there, right? So, Genesis 18, we're going to start in chapter, or verse 1, but I want to go ahead and point out, unlike most of Tony's preaching, when he preaches through a book over the course of several months, Since I'm focusing on a specific call on our lives, um, I'm not interested in, like, picking and gleaning every possible lesson from this passage. But there are many, and they're important. I'm just not skilled enough to to draw all of that out, and, and that's just not for us this morning. But let's set this up here in Genesis 18. So the chapter heading in my Bible says, The birth of Isaac promised. Now, this is not the first promise of Isaac. God has already come to Abraham and promised him descendants. He's promised him an heir from his own body. Most of us are familiar with the story of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham. That's another doozy. Um, And then even after that, God comes back to Abraham a third time and promises a son by Sarah. So Abraham has had three encounters with God before this about promised offspring. And that's where we are here in chapter 1. So... I'm going to read down through verse, I mean, chapter 18, verse 1. I'll read down through verse 14. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, 
If I had found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and that you may show, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, so do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three says of the finest flour, and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that, he had, that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where's your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So we find Abraham here sitting at the door of his tent. Middle of the day, I'm going to extrapolate and guess, it's hot. Okay, so he's just waiting. The Lord and two angels journey by, uh, they come by. I'm not sure how Abraham knew it was the Lord, um, but again, he's had several encounters with God already. He, he's an old man. He's walked with the Lord a long time. So that's just, you know, one of those side notes, like the more time we spend with the Lord, the, the easier it gets for us to see him working. So I don't know how Abraham knows it, but, but he does. There's a familiarity there. I don't really have a good way to explain how or why God uses angels in this passage, um, but this is not the first mention of angels either in the Old Testament. This is one of those, I don't want to miss the lessons on hospitality here for talking about angels, but I do think those sermons would be interesting. Um, but these angels are messengers. So often they are in Scripture. Prior to this chapter, there's no indication that God explicitly commanded Abraham to practice hospitality. So maybe there's a cultural expectation, but just because it's cultural doesn't mean we ignore the call for us. Or perhaps because he recognizes it's the Lord, he just jumps into motion. We don't know. But the passage does clearly tell us Abraham's motivation. So we'll look in verses 4 and 5. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and then you may go on. He wanted them to rest, and he brought them food so they could be refreshed. Or the little note in the margin of my Bible says, or so that they can sustain their heart. I just, I just love this. That's hospitality. This is, what, this is what hospitality is. It's intentional acts of service that provide rest and refreshment. We can all agree that life is hard, that we are weary, that the wounds don't leave us. And we're all on a journey. And, and the idea of hospitality is that someone would come into our presence and when they leave, they would have found refreshment, that the burdens are a little less heavy. They're not gone but they're a little less heavy. Abraham knows the weariness that comes with sojourn. 
He'd left his homeland when he was much younger. He continued on after the death of his father to a land that God had promised them. He escaped a famine by going to Egypt. The famine went away. He went back from Egypt. So he knew what dirty feet and an empty belly felt like. He knew what a good foot washing and a snack can do for his spirit. And this is hospitality, that we understand we all need that sometimes. So Abraham ministered, and he ministered to strangers. But he needed help. So he recruited his wife, Sarah, and his servant for preparation. Sarah, please break some bread. Abraham and the servant helped with the, the preparing the calf and, and getting all of that ready. And then we'll look in verse 8 again. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he placed it before them. Do you notice anything? Sarah didn't do her part. He doesn't have any bread for his visitors. Now, this is not a sermon on marriage and submission. You're welcome. But she didn't do her part. There is no bread. We don't know why. Maybe she didn't have time. Maybe she's a lot like me and doesn't like to be volunteered for things. Maybe she was just grumpy. I didn't ask for these visitors to come today. Maybe she was in the middle of something that she thought was really important. We don't know, but I think it's easy for us to imagine her response. I know it is for me, because for any moment where I've had the, the desire of Abraham Oh, look, these people are passing by my way. I've had countless times with Sarah's attitude. Not this week. No, no. Not today. I'm just, there's not, mm -mm. you want bread, Abraham? You make the bread, right? We find reasons not to. And yet, Sarah gets the message from God that day. Sarah does not demonstrate hospitality. But she gets what scripture seems to indicate is her first personal promise of a child from God. Before this, God came to Abraham and said, you'll have a child. You'll have a child. I promise, a child. And I don't know how things would go in your house, but if David came home one day and said, you know that thing we've been praying about for a really, really, really long time? God told me it was going to happen. I would be ecstatic. But then after I wait 20 years... I kind of doubt what he thinks he heard that day, right? And then he comes home another time and says, I heard it again, I heard it again. I'm probably going to go, I don't know that that's what you think you're hearing, you know, right? And then the third time he comes home, I'm going to say, I don't want to hear it. I'm bitter. If God has a message, why doesn't he tell it to me? Where is the child, you know? So I think it's fair for us to think, Sarah's probably a little bitter. But God comes to Sarah. This is why we offer hospitality. We need to encounter messengers from God. I think so often we think, if we think of hospitality, we think God wants us to do that so we can change their life. I mean, that meal might really change their life. If you're at my house, it won't. But, you know, that encouragement, ooh, maybe I could even witness to them, right? 
But when you look over and over throughout Scripture at calls to hospitality, it seems that the host is changed by the guest. I'm guessing, and it's a guess, but when Sarah put her head on the pillow that night, I bet she had hope that she hadn't had every time Abraham brought that promise in her house because she heard it herself that day. And I bet she had a little bit more hope. It was personal now. She heard from God. But Abraham's hospitality brought that message to her door. When we consider other stories of hospitality in the Old Testament, like Elijah and the widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah needs food. Her faithfulness to provide for him saves her life. And in time allows Elijah to raise her son from the dead. She needed Elijah. It started because Elijah needed her, but it ended with him changing her life. The Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4, her life is changed by her hospitality to Elisha. He raised her son from the dead. Different woman, different son, same thing. To be clear, there's no indication these women offered hospitality because they thought, ooh, if I help this dude, someday he'll help me. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know entirely what these men were capable of. But their hospitality changed their life. Hospitality changes the host. In the New Testament, we are told several times specifically to practice hospitality. Paul tells us that in Romans 12. It's verse 13, but it's in a list of things that we are told to do and be. Paul tells Timothy that church leaders should be hospitable. Uh, last year, when we, I think it was last year, year and a half ago, when we were nominating elders and there were a couple of Bible verses on the, on the back of the card, the nomination card, I wonder how many of you noticed that hospitable was in that list. How many of you, when you think, now he is a man of God, because of his hospitality. See, years ago, I would never have considered that because I thought she has the gift of hospitality. In Titus, Paul instructs church leaders should be hospitable. Peter, in his first epistle, charges the church, among other things, to be hospitable to one another without complaint. In Hebrews 13.2, we are told, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing. For by this, Abraham brought angels to Sarah, even when she didn't know that's why they were there. The entertainment in this verse in Hebrews is not the emphasis. I know we can get caught up in, if I'm going to have people in my home, I have to entertain them. Fake news. But we do need to note that Hebrews 13 clearly says, in other places as well, that we show hospitality to strangers because they may be sent to teach us something we won't learn another way. Sometimes we don't learn all we need from reading our Bible in the morning. I'm not trying to encourage you not to do that. But sometimes prayer alone is not what God needs to get our attention. Sometimes we learn something from other people. And we shouldn't miss the word stranger. Yes, we need to make our homes places where our family and our friends, our church community can find rest and refreshment. 
but in my experience, sometimes I get too comfortable with the people I know. And it's hard for me to learn what I need to learn from somebody I live with or someone I see all the time. We can become too comfortable providing for each other, and we need to do that. But sometimes we neglect the strangers among us. Loving each other well in this community is part of our testimony, but we are also called to love the stranger. And Tony mentioned this last week. He talked about the the transformation. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about a day that's coming. And he asked, I mean, he sets a standard. Hospitality is part of it. When describing the judgment, he says, For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. His sheep show hospitality. All throughout Scripture, God is pointing us to lives where strangers and his children find rest and sustaining for their spirit on the journey in ways that change lives. Again, our faith is transforming. It is renewing. God is not a father in heaven with the world's largest sticker chart waiting for his children to complete their chores that he gave them. I'll give a sticker to Melissa today because she had guests in her home for dinner. And I'll give her a sticker for that one time. She visited that sick widow. And then somewhere a bell rings in heaven when Melissa completes her her chore chart. And then I get moved from the goat pen to the sheep pen. So I'm ready for judgment day. That's not the way it works. It sounds kind of silly when I say it like that, but aren't we the rich young ruler? Don't we want a list of to-dos? But it's the transforming that he's after. It's not a change in label. Goats don't become sheep. We are transformed as we walk out our faith. These are Jesus' expectations. We become more like Jesus when we love others like Jesus. Tony said that last week. We become more like Jesus when we serve others like Jesus. And Tony reminded us, especially those that are the least like you, the least like me. Some of you may be thinking, this makes sense, Melissa. I'm already doing this. And some of you are. I see it. My family benefits from it. I see your hospitality. Some of you may be thinking, that sounds great, Melissa, but not in my house. Nobody's getting peace at my house right now. And to that, I would say, I understand. Some of you may be single and you think, you know, bringing strangers into my space, I have some legitimate, like, questions about what that might communicate. Some of you teenagers, if you're even listening, you might think this doesn't apply to you because you don't even have a house. You're talking about a house and I don't even have a house. It's important that we acknowledge biblical hospitality involves the stranger. It involves our homes. But it's also a corporate charge. The New Testament letters mentioned, they were written to church bodies, church leaders. Hey, community of faith, practice hospitality. What would it mean when a stranger walks into Providence on a Sunday morning and when they leave, their testimony is that they found rest and sustaining for their heart? I'll be honest, a number of you attend Providence regularly 
faithfully, you have for some time, and I would consider you a stranger because I haven't done my part. Dwayne Elmer, in his book, Cross-Cultural Servanthood, and I apologize for not having this quote on the screen, says, hospitality, the word hospitality, is rooted in the word hospital. It comes from two Greek words, meaning loving the stranger. That's evolved to mean house for strangers, and it later came to be known as a place of healing, a hospital. Eventually, hospitality meant connecting with strangers in such a way that healing takes place. Therefore, when we show openness towards people who are different from us, welcoming them in our presence and making them feel safe, the relationship becomes a place of healing. That was Dwayne Elmer. Is anybody in here needing healing? We find it in relationship. What does it mean for us to welcome a stranger into our gatherings because we're not just trying to be warm and friendly and say, you're welcome here, but we are convicted that we have a hope that they'll bring a testimony of God that we need to hear for our transforming. Maybe, like Sarah, that healing is mine or yours. In my experience, when we commit to hospitality, we get a taste for what God has for us in those interactions. We grow in our comfort, looking for those opportunities and trusting what God has for us. It can become really entwined with our faith practice. It can be a discipline. The Bible says practice it. Sometimes we can get to the point where we feel like we're missing something if we haven't had people in our homes for a while. So teenagers, I want to ask, is there somebody that used to come to youth group and they don't come anymore? And yeah, we can all find reasons why they don't come, but maybe if you're really honest, you think it's because they came and they weren't really included. I mean... They didn't have somebody with them the whole time that would make the inside jokes with them. And and maybe they didn't like the games that were played. Well, that's their choice. They'll find somewhere else they can enjoy the games. They'll find another youth group. But maybe it's not about them. Maybe it's about us. Singles. Again, I understand. You've got to be careful with your space, and you want to think about, like, how do I bring strangers into my house? Please, that's not the takeaway from today's sermon. Everyone have a stranger in your house. But again, if we are convinced that God would use a stranger to teach us something, something we need to hear, to bring healing, how can you use your time and space to host messengers? What about others here? Are there ways that you can be obedient in your home environment? Is there a way you can use your lunch break at work, time between shifts? You know a coworker's going through a hard time, and you are, and you've said some prayers for them, and you tell them that, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. But can you sit and listen to what's going on? Not because they need you to change their reality, but maybe because they have a testimony of what's going on in their life that you need to hear. Like Sarah and Abraham, what might your spouse learn 
because of your commitment to hospitality? What might your children learn unwittingly because you are committed to bringing strangers across their path? What might our communities learn if the testimony of Providence were to be, that church is so hospitable. If we were to display the kind of corporate hospitality that doesn't just say, anyone is welcome, please join us, but says, we understand that as a stranger, you have an irreplaceable role to play in my spiritual growth and my healing. Like Abraham, may we all sit at the tent of our lives, watching and asking the Lord to tell us who is passing by that needs my attention to sustain their spirit. We'll need to be intentional. We need to look. Abraham was waiting and looking. We may need to build more margin into our lives. We need to step out in faith. But we need to be convicted that those strangers may carry a message from the Lord that we need to be transformed into God's image. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in our body right now, but I know that you're asking us to change. To be like you. And that's what we want. We want to be like you. So may our energy in our mindset, in the position of our heart, be one where we are teachable, we are moldable. We want the awareness that comes with conviction that we would be committed to the healing that takes place in relationships. In your name I pray, amen.